0: Amen. Now, some of you are not here some of them are not here but hopefully I do trust that they'll tune in <clears throat> I'll send them <coughs> the files and hopefully they will take heed and listen so some interesting things here really interesting so church history So church history is defined as a chronological account and interpretation of the impact of Christ, the gospel, and his churches upon mankind. The two operative words are church and history, and both need to be defined. Church, it's an organized assembly of born-again, baptized, scripturally baptized believers. Not just any baptism. And history, his story, we often hear that, his story, his story. Since in all ages the God of heaven is working his purpose out, true history should be seen through the eyes of God and therefore becomes his story. History. So what is meant by church history? There are two ways we can look at church history. Well, there's a general general way and this views the history of, quote unquote, the church as being that of all the denominations, Catholic, Protestant, and Baptist. When I, I don't Refer to us or call us a denomination. We're not. We're we're Baptists by distinctive, by distinctive. Holding to the doctrines of Christ and the apostles, and you know that the you know we believe in the perpetuity of the Lord's churches throughout history. That there's always there's always been true churches throughout history. We didn't come out of Rome. Well, we're not part of the, you know, the Protestant Reformation. We didn't seek to reform the Roman Catholic Church. What, you know, that's what Luther and, and Calvin and Zwingli and, and others sought to do. You said you have the kinship view rather than the mm. yeah, yeah, yeah. A church is either considered to be anything that claims to be one or a term used to refer to Christendom in general. I like to use that term Christendom when you, when, you use, like when you use the very broad term to incorporate the Catholics in and that, anyone that names the name of Christ. Although this is the usual way to view church history in most circles, it is not the biblical view. Most church histories follow this pattern and thus are really a, histor- a history of Christendom. Now we've got the Bible way. And this way considers true history as a history of churches that conform to the New Testament patterns. This is Baptist history. Some of you here took courses on Baptist history I did. It wasn't just church history, it was Baptist history. Details of the history of the Lord's churches are found predominantly in the records of the courts and writings of their Catholic and Protestant antagonists, thus pre- presenting views that are often distorted and biased. Throughout history, real churches were hated, hunted, and persecuted, and often called heretics because you would not conform to the decrees of the popes, councils, synods, or rulers. Their stand for the word of God often resulted in, in their death, so much so that Baptist history has aptly been called a trail of blood. Yeah. By, the way, by the way, this is the copy we ought to always order, not these red ones here. They leave out the introduction, and they have tons. This has has a good chart. The chart's really good, but... Tons of, like, typos in this. I can understand the odd typo, but this is, like, filled with typos. Filled. And they leave out the introduction there. So our forefathers and notable events of the last 2,000 years will claim our attention. We recognize that our Baptist forefathers often were called by other names, yet believed as we do today in most things. Obviously, they didn't have such and such Baptist church their, you know in the front of their, you know, their door like we do, but really they held to much of the same doctrines. Against the backdrop, the backdrop of history of Christendom, we will study the history of the New Testament churches. Now, this is not from, uh, just to let you know, <coughs> What I've here—it's not from the landmarks of Baptist doctrine. It's from something that incorporates some of that. It's more condensed. Otherwise, we will be doing this for a few years. <laughs> it's not bad. So, why study church history, Baptist church history? All right. Well, there are several reasons. First of all, it will encourage us in the sure promises of God. All right. We shall see that God promised in his word the perpetuity of his churches and has fulfilled that promise to this day. I believe that. I hold to that. Secondly, it will strengthen our resolve to earnestly contend for the faith. When we understand the cost our forefathers paid to preserve our biblical heritage, we will be motivated to continue steadfast in our own generation. This is why I won't drop the name Baptist from our door. There's a lot of Baptists that want to drop Baptists because of whatever negative connotation. But our, foref- our forefathers paid dearly. You know, they're burned at the stake. And even the downplaying of Baptism. You know, uh, you know that Dr. Robert, Robert Patton, uh, when I posted, I noticed every time I posted the baptism, and he claims to be a Baptist, But it's like he always, even though it was not against it, it's like he downplayed the importance, the significance of that. And I understand that your salvation is more important. I understand that your baptism is a one-time event, but why downplay something? Especially men died over the issue of baptism, literally laid down their life over that issue. The legacy of our failure to have taught these things in generations past is evident in the readiness with which members of Baptist churches change their affiliation to heretical churches. So here's an outline of church history. And I really should have put this on the, uh, going forward, I will be putting it on a PowerPoint. We've got the primitive church history. The Apostolic Era, from, from right up to 100 A.D. The Post-Apostolic Era, 100 to 300 A.D. The Rise of the Papacy, 300 to 600. The Medieval Church History, that's the growth of the Papacy, 600 to 1100. Power of the Papacy, 1100 to 1300. The Decline of the Papacy, 1300 to 1500, and then Modern Church History, and then you've got the Reformation there, 1500 to 1650. The development of Protestantism, 1650 to 1900, and the 20th century. I call of the Apostle, <laughs> yeah, the End the an Age. <clears throat> so the marks of a New Testament church. The marks. In pursuit of the history of the true churches, certain identifying marks need to be resolved, vital clues that will reveal the existence of God's people in every age. Those who have not bowed the knee to the traditions, philosophies, inventions, and fancies of men. Right? So here, I have it marked over here. (coughs) We have marks of New Testament church here. And here we've got its head and founder is Jesus Christ. Right? He is the lawgiver. The church, the church is the only, sorry, the, the lawgiver, the church is only the executive. Second, it is its only rule of faith and practice is the Bible and its name, church, churches. You have 11 here. Now, we've narrowed it down to eight here, but its policy, congregational, all members equal. Its members only save people. I know unsaved people join churches, but they're not really true. They're not true members. Its ordinances, what were they? Right, baptism, believer's baptism, followed by the Lord's Supper. And of course, we can go into more detail on that. We hold a closed communion on that. It's officers, officers rather, or pastors and deacons. It's work, basically getting folks saved, baptizing them with, with a baptism that meets all the requirements of God's Word, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. It's, it's financial plan, Right, tithes and offerings, or offerings. I think we go in the New Testament it even goes beyond the tithe. Really, it's an offering when you give unto the Lord. You're giving. A, you're giving a free will offering. Right. Right. It's weapons of warfare, spiritual, not carnal. Right. It's independence, separation of church and state. And here. These are, the, these are these eight over here. The absolute necessity of a regenerated life. The purity of the church body. Believer's baptism, a simple form of church government, which we have here. We vote on business matters. I mean, there's some things I, I you know I can override, but generally, if we have a business decision, we're going to vote on it. We're going to take on a, a new missionary. We're going to vote on it. Uh, the right, individual soul, liberty. The right to free speech, or the right of free speech. We don't have that in this country, by the way. We don't have free speech in this country. Don't think you have it. We've we've experienced it firsthand. We don't have free speech, and these moronic police officers don't don't seem to understand that they're actually removing your free speech by telling you to move you out of an area. Individual soul liberty, absolute authority of the word of God. The sole authority of the New Testament in all church matters, right? So in the final analysis, the one distinguish, distinguishing mark of a Bible-believing Baptist church is its doctrine of baptism. It's a big thing for me. It is the one mark more than anything else which brought about the martyrdom of listen to that martyrdom of millions of our Baptist forefathers. This is why I do not like to downplay a believer's baptism. I don't. People died. You no know, fellow saints that went before us died for this cause, for the freedom that we have today. Really, when you think about it. It's really sad that some of these so-called Baptists, and I call them so-called Baptists, even some of these Ruckmanite guys, they just downplay all this stuff. The fact is, Baptist rather, baptism says it all. And think about it. Since most man made Christian religions practice infant sprinkling for baptism, a comparison is enlightening. Infant sprinkling stands for baptismal baptismal regeneration. That's what it stands for. Unregenerate church membership, sacralist, church-state control. That's what really it is. You know, for us, when you receive your believers' baptism, it's it's a doorway also into the local church. Satan's counterfeit is it's a doorway for that child into the state church. Right? So that would be the Roman Catholic Church and their and their daughters. The authority of men versus the Bible and spiritual affairs. Right? that's the Roman Catholic Church and all of that. You know the traditions there, the authority of men. Another gospel, that's what Rome has. And of course, if it's baptismal regeneration, you if you that's required for salvation, it is another gospel. Since only immersion is a picture of the true gospel, that is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, you know, you know, baptismal regeneration is completely, uh, uh, obviously, contrary to that. So it's not a matter of preference or custom. That's why in history and today, baptism is a hot issue. It is. It is. Whether they're downplaying it or just digging their heels when it comes to proper scriptural baptism. I mean, I had to convince Andrew uh, for it. It took a little bit of convincing why you needed it. And, of course, uh, you know, the issue, too, is the potential to move as well. But, you know, you can always transfer a membership if the Lord leads you <coughs> leads you away. But I, 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 I might add to this that the Lord doesn't lead people away just willy-nilly, right? I mean, if it's a planning of a church and things like that, sometimes for work, but generally when he plants you, he sets you, you're, you're basically there for some time. I firmly believe that. Unless, of course, our church apostatizes and I understand you moving on. Now, understanding the identifying marks, opponents of Carroll's and our, that's our view here, of Baptist history point to the differences and in some cases the excesses of the various ancient parties he identifies as our Baptist forefathers. It is not denied that there were differences in excesses and there are reasons for these differences. firstly, Baptists are non-creedal people, right? What are we? Yeah. Confessional. confessional. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I heard it from... Yeah, confessional. Yeah. <laughs> Baptists have never subscribed to any rigid creed, and the various groups we will study do have diverse histories that account for minor differences. For instance, the Maldenses originated in the West and the Paulicians in the East. Both parties were Baptists, but any effort to treat them as one and the same is misleading. Baptists are a branded people. Always keep in mind that our Baptist forefathers were considered heretics by their established church and state. The practice of linking them in with other parties, guilt by association, was common. The charges of Manichaeism, that is, dualism, was given against the Politians and Albigenses, And I've actually read that. The Anabaptists were called communists. Often the current negative word was applied to all the enemies of church and state. So keep that in mind. Regardless of all the variations, however, there has been a consistent and persistent emphasis upon the great fundamental truths of the word of God. Now, the biblical basis for Baptist Church perpetuity. Although the facts of history are ever before us, it is true that people can dispute our interpretation of them. History has been debated, has been a debated subject, uh, sorry, has been a debated subject, therefore. However, we are starting from a point of origin that is foreign to many students of history. We start with the Bible and then interpret the facts of history in light of the plain Word of God. The scriptures teach the existence of real New Testament churches in all ages from the very first church. Our basis of study is the word of God. Historical facts only serve to illustrate what God says. This is the most important truth to understand. And amen to that. So what is meant by Baptist perpetuity? Well, first of all, a negative explanation. By Baptist perpetuity, we do not mean Apostolic succession is claimed by the Roman Catholic Church. This entails a chain of ordinations and baptisms. Secondly, or B, an identifiable unbroken chain of churches. I don't believe that either. And the perpetuity of the name Baptist. It does not mean any of these. Now, for instance, at Grace Missionary Baptist Church, we're not going to be able to trace our church lineage all the way to the time of Jesus Christ. That's foolish. But we've been accused of that. I've been accused of it already. Well, no, that's not what we mean. <coughs> I mean, it'd be foolish. I mean, do you know who planted this church? Or I guess it was Pastor Gregory, right? Um, but then, would you know the, the sending church and the sending church of that church, and so on and so forth? Would you be able to? What was that? I just know the sending church. Right? And what, what was the name of that church? Baptist in Jefferson. In Wisconsin, Jefferson. yeah. But you wouldn't know then, you wouldn't go before, yeah, before that, would you? So exactly, yeah. So a positive explanation. By Baptist perpetuity we mean there has never been a day since the organization of the first New Testament church by the Lord Jesus Christ and the apostles in which there was no genuine New Testament uh, church existing on the earth. So there's never been a day where there's never been uh, a true, genuine New Testament church existing on earth. (laughs) (coughs) Again, we do not come out of Rome. This view is in opposition to the Protestant view that the church disappeared during the Dark Ages. We're talking about a perpetual proclamation of principles and an existence of true churches of Christ in every age since the time of Christ. Now, various Baptist views of Baptist perpetuity. Not all Baptists share the same view of succession. In his book, Baptist Successionism, A Critical View, a book which seeks to refute any view of perpetuity, Dr. W. Morgan Patterson characterizes four prevailing opinions within the ranks of Baptists. The first one is, one group believes that a succession of Baptist churches can be de- demonstrated from the time of Christ and that such is necessary to, pro- to the proof of the theory. Outstanding advocates of this position were G.H. Orchard and D.B. Ray. And I have, you know, I don't, have, I don't think I have D.B. Ray in my library, but I have G.H. Orchard, I think some of you do, too, as well. The second group believes Baptist succession is doctrinally necessary, although not always historically de- demonstrable. It is a reality that S.H. Ford is a historian who held this view. We have books by him as well. The third group believes Baptist succession is dem- demonstrable in histor- in the historical record, but that it is not necessary or essential to Baptist scripturali- scripturali- scripturality rather. Other historians T. G. Jones belong to this group, and then the fourth group notes like, uh, so notes many likenesses between doctrines of the ancient and medieval dissenters and modern Baptists, but do not believe historical succession can be demonstrated, nor that it is scripturally necessary. This group would hold to the belief that Baptists did not begin until the 1600s in England. Among contenders for this position are R.G. Torbett and H.C. Vedder. And there are many today, many Baptists today that believe that. That it was for basically, we, didn't, uh, we, we'd, we, we began in the early 1600s. I think Jesus said, "I will build my church in sixteen hundred years." Yeah, I will build my upon this rock. I will build my church in approximately sixteen hundred years. The gates that. of hell, will, oh, <laughs> upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will prevail against it for about sixteen, at least at least at least a thousand years, and then. <laughs> then it will. Then it won't, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> <coughs> now, Bible proofs. Of church perpetuity the New Testament knows of only one kind of church and many scriptures clearly indicate that such churches will always be present upon the earth so let's consider the following obviously we went to Matthew 1680 18 we went there already we won't go again here the Lord Jesus Christ himself gives his churches the promise of perpetual victory in the work of winning the lost if the gates of hell ever were to prevail against the assault of the gospel True churches would have ceased to be. Amen? Then we've got Matthew 18, 17. It's funny, like, the the first mention of the word church is in the most Jewish gospel. Matthew 18, 17. Well, actually, we'll turn there. Matthew 18, 17. And if ye shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church... But if you neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man, and a publican, the church. The church was in existence then, already, through the Lord's earthly ministry. If New Testament churches have ceased to exist, a scriptural admonition becomes meaningless for us today, right? And it is an admonition for today. I do believe we apply it to our churches, unlike some of the hyper-dispensationalists. Matthew 28 and verse 20 Since the Great Commission was given to Christians institutionally, i.e. the New Testament churches, rather than individually, the promise of Christ's perpetual presence demands perpetual existence of of such churches. Of course, we've got the Great Commission here. (coughs) Um, Sorry, I'm not there. I was in Matthew 20. 19, we'll start in verse 19. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Amen. The Lord's Supper, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26, we'll turn there. The Lord's Supper is an ordinance given to the churches to observe till he comes. Thus necessitating true churches to be in existence till Jesus comes. By the way, the last Passover eventually became the Lord's Supper, the first Lord's Supper. We can go back a little bit here, verse 24. Yeah, sorry, oh boy first Corinthians 12 13, another hotly contested verse since baptism is a church ordinance and since the Lord commands believers to be baptized and it follows there must always be churches around to baptize those believers. why would the Lord command something then allow the means of obedience to disappear? Now of course some will, Uh, some will interpret this verse as as having no water so they will remove the water from this verse very common is that your OCD kicking in there brother? (laughs) it's okay that would bother me too (laughs) 1 Corinthians 12 verse 13 if you're there already for by one spirit are we all baptized into one body? Many will interpret there are many today that interpret that as that baptism of the spirit being born again, that you're ba- you're baptized into this universal f- mystical body of Christ, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be born or free and have been all, been all made to drink in the one spirit. Ephesians two verses nineteen through twenty two. Every real church is God's temple. If churches if such churches have ceased to exist, then God has no temple here on earth. Ephesians two 19, Now therefore you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord. I believe that to be the local church. Uh, what we have today within Christendom, in this universal body of Christ, can never be fitly framed together. How can the uh, Pentecostal, a Methodist, a Brethren, you've got all these denominations beliefs, all these different things, even other Baptists are in disagreement, how could they be fitly framed together? It's impossible. Impossible. But you can be fitly framed together right here in the local church. You know, other local churches may apostatize, but we can still be fitly framed together here. Verse 22, In whom ye also are builded together for inhabitation of God through the Spirit. So will keep this up here. Let's go to 1 Timothy 3.15. <clears throat> again, I do apologize for the coughing as well, but I know that you're coughing too, so I don't feel so bad. <laughs> It's, and again, it's like, like you have to cough about six times before you loosen whatever's in there. Yeah. <coughs> cough six times and bomb. Yeah. <laughs> <Never been> yeah. <laughs> well, it, it was really bad for your brother. I understand. <laughs> I mean, it was a lot worse than even us. But if I. T- <laughs> But if I, if I tarry long that thou mayest know how how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. You know, I read that verse. It was kind of funny because remember we're, we're, we're preaching over at the, that Argos pride game and the security told us where to go. Well, you can go you see where those two pillars are. Oh, by the way, do you realize the church is the pillar and the ground of the truth? I said right to him. He loved, that. He loved it. I was laughing. He was laughing at that he says <laughs> over you see those pillars over there by the way yep the, you do realize the Bible says the church is the, the church is the pillar and the ground of the truth <laughs> I thought that was good okay Ephesians 3 and verse 21 the spirit inspired prayer of the apostle would be in vain except or this rather spirit inspired prayer of the apostle would be in vain except for the truth of church perpetuity <coughs> that the Bible do, where was I here, First 3, verse 21, by the way, 3 and verse 15 here, of whom the family in heaven and earth is named, so many confuse this universal body of Christ with the family of God and the kingdom of God, verse 21 here, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end, amen, amen and Ephesians 5 verse 27 (coughs) Here, evidently the Lord expects to have churches in existence until the dawn of glory when he can present them not having spot or wrinkle and by the way this is not universal either Mm -hmm. 5 and verse I'm in the wrong chapter that's why and it says here, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy without blemish. Without blemish. And then 1 Timothy 3. All right, the two officers, bishops and deacons are church offices. God has given their qualifications and it follows that real churches must be present for such men to minister in them. By the way, you can't you don't these officers cannot apply to a universal body. They cannot. You cannot have a pastor of a universal church. Well, Jesus Christ, but you know, not the office Yeah, that's that's Protestant doctrine. That that come you know these these so-called Baptists that espouse that, they're they're just like echoing uh, Schofield. He's got like local church, universal body, he's got all these he breaks it all up, but Alright, so try first Timothy chapter three, and I'm there now. This is a true saying if a man, not a woman, a man desire the office of a bishop he desireth a good work. A bishop must, uh, them must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given the hospitality, apt to teach, not given the wine, no striker, not greedy a filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler. So gentlemen, we have got to be careful when you're out there. We're not into that. You know that we're not into that. Not covetous, one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil." It's like this uh, Baptist preacher here, and I believe he, he was lost. He went to hell. There's no way you could be that filthy and just, if he didn't get caught, he would have been doing the same thing. I mean, it was filthy. It was not just like, it's. Likewise, now we've got the next office here. Must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre, holding the mystery of the faith in, in a pure conscience? And let these also be, uh, be. Let these also first be proved. Then let them use the office of a deacon, being found blameless. Even so, must their wives be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. For they that have used the office of a deacon well purchase to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto you shortly. And I'm reading beyond what I have to read there. So we'll leave it at that. And we'll take it up. There are five things God has promised to, to preserve. And of course, he's promised primarily to preserve his word.